Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. All right, I'm pumped for this one, and it's not because I get to feed off the fervor, off the vigor of angry Kansas fans after two straight losses. No, we'll get to that, but one of the favorite interviews I've ever done, Luke Fedlum is a NIL expert. He is the president of Anomaly Sports Group, and we're going to talk NIL. We're going to get into the teeth of it. He'll explain it in layman's terms, and we'll get into the weeds with exactly what's happened over the last eight or nine months and what the next five to ten years are going to look like. This episode of Waving the Weed is brought to you by Home Field Apparel, premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis. It's incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs. They are in the middle of the big new Saturday season three where they launch a new school on their site every Saturday for eight straight weeks. This is currently week seven and the school they're launching is, of course, none other than the Kansas Jayhawks. People are always asking me, why are you wearing these hoodies and t-shirts with these weird, obscure mascots? Why are you wearing a hoodie with a blue donkey? I say, it's not a blue donkey. It's an ore digger. Colorado School of Mines. Look it up, dude. Oh, Slippery Rock. Where's that at? Did you go? Dude, I don't know where Slippery Rock's at. I've never even heard of them. I just saw a picture of a rock wearing a fur coat, and I said, I got to have that. Listen, Home Field Apparel is the most comfortable gear you're ever going to wear. And I'm not just saying that because they're a sponsor. I'm saying it because I have been rocking them since day one. And I always go up to people and I say, hey, touch it. Feel it. Go on. Go on. Feel the inside of this. Feel how comfortable this hoodie is. And I'll say, dude, no, I don't want to touch your stuff. Please stop. I'm willing to make you uncomfortable just to prove to you how comfortable home field apparel is. I've always liked the obscure, rare mascots and rocking them and starting conversations. But now with the Kansas collection, it's back to the basics. It's back to the team that I want to rock. The Kansas collection is going to have 14 pieces of apparel in the collection, including T-shirts, hoodies, crewnecks, all vintage marks. You know your favorite old logos for KU. Now you can rock them in the most comfortable gear known to man. And because you're a listener of this podcast, new customers can get 15% off their first purchase from Homefield when you use the code NICK. That's N-I-C-K at checkout 
at homefieldapparel.com. That's 15% off your first purchase from Homefield when you use the code Nick at checkout at homefieldapparel.com. I think we're going to have a pretty big mailbag, so I want to keep this open as brief as I possibly can while also kind of getting to the gist of where KU's at now with two games to go in the regular season. KU has now lost two straight games. Baylor on Saturday, TCU in Fort Worth on Tuesday night. One of those games is more shocking than the other. KU let TCU play to their strengths on Tuesday while TCU took away KU's strengths. Bill Sell's philosophy has always been that the best teams create easy buckets for themselves and they stop the other team from creating easy buckets for themselves. And Kansas did neither of those things on Tuesday. 19 offensive rebounds for TCU. That is by far KU's worst defensive rebounding mark in Big 12 play. Their previous worst was against Texas Tech in Lubbock. Loss. Next worst was Texas in Austin. Loss. Are you sensing a trend? But wait, but wait, there's more. Of course there's more. Their worst defensive rebounding game of the year was against Dayton, who got an offensive rebound on 48% of their misses. Think about that. 48% of their misses, Dayton. Dayton was getting an offensive rebound against KU. So, in conclusion, that's their four worst defensive rebounding games of the season. I just laid them all out for you, and they were all losses. There's your trend. You throw in the Kentucky game, And that's five of their seventh worst defensive rebounding games. Those were all losses. Might want to write that one down. Save that for March when you're filling out a bracket. This is not a good defensive rebounding team. They rank 212th in the country. That's bad. And even, I mean, you go through the history of Bill Self. He's had some bad defensive teams at KU, or or bad defensive rebounding teams, I should say. Uh, This isn't the worst. Actually, 2018 was even worse. But you... It's not a deal-breaker as long as you are good at something else defensively, right? Like, you can be a bad defensive rebounding team if you're really good at rim protection. Now, usually that won't be the case because a lot of those things go hand-in-hand, but you get the point. You have to make up for it in other areas, which this team does not. So, if you're going to be a bad defensive team, then you, in turn, have to make up for it on the other end, which KU has been for most of this season. They're one of the elite offenses in the country, but they didn't make up for it on Tuesday. KU went 14 of 40 from two-point range against TCU. That's 35%. That is their worst mark of the season on two-point shots. So your eyes were not lying to you. They sucked in every aspect of the game. Like This is not one of those games where you go back and you say, okay, well, who's more to blame here? No, they were bad on both ends of the court. They were bad in both halves. The starters, the bench. It was maybe the hardest game of the season to watch. Kentucky's up there, but Kentucky's Kentucky, so you can easily explain that away. It's a tougher pill to swallow when it's TCU. By the way, their second worst two-point shooting mark of the season was versus Baylor on Saturday. Uh Uh-oh. Third worst two-point shooting mark of the season? Kentucky. Do we have another trend? It's starting to feel like we found another trend here. KU's been great at scoring inside this year. It's actually been one of their bread and butters. 23rd, even after... That game against TCU, 23rd in the country on two-point shots. But it's now the second straight game where the other team has just looked quicker or stronger or tougher. Is KU tired? Like That seems to be uh, something I'm hearing a lot on Twitter that maybe they've got, 
uh, tired legs or that they're just fatigued. I mean, maybe it would make sense for any team to be tired at this point of the year, but what I don't get is why are they more tired than everybody else? I get they're playing four games in eight days, so it would make more sense if they're tired after Thursday's game or if they're tired after Saturday's game, but doing the Saturday-Tuesday turnaround, I mean, everybody's doing that turnaround, so... And it's not like KU's the only team that's not going super deep into their bench, so I don't know. Maybe there's something to that. I mean, I don't I don't doubt that they're tired, but I don't get why the other teams, why Baylor looks so energized, why TCU looks so energized. Maybe they are just, and I hate to say this, but maybe they want it more, right? They're playing harder. That's what's more concerning as well. KU looked flustered from the get-go, and they never really got it back. And with the experience that you have on the roster, that's a little unexpected. I mean, Ochai's a senior, Dave's a senior, Christian's been there for three years. You don't expect those sorts of guys to look uh, so flustered or sporadic, especially in an environment like Fort Worth. Like, it's one thing if you're if you're in Ames or you're in Lubbock, but really, against TCU? That's unexpected. And it hasn't been the most inspiring two-game stretch for the Hawks. I get it. The defense has been atrocious. The offense has been inefficient, and that was supposed to be the constant, so it's easy to point the finger at that end of the court as to the reason why they've struggled. And it certainly plays a hand in it, but 19 offensive rebounds, you give up 19 offensive rebounds, I don't care if you're the best offensive rebounding team in the country, which TCU is, by the way. you got to be tougher than that. That was soft basketball in Fort Worth, and Bill Self is going to crawl up their ass in practice, I can promise you that. I don't mean he's going to be making them run suicides and, and make it because, again, like I do think this team is is probably a little fatigued, so there is a way to get your point across without making guys run. But I think Bill can live with a team that made some bad passes, made some bad shots, or made bad shot selection, whatever. I don't think he'll live with a team playing soft, and they played soft as hell against TCU. I don't expect them to look like that on the defensive glass again this season, but that game feels like a microcosm of the year. You want defensive improvements, get tougher, be stronger on the glass, stay in front of your man, cut off driving lanes, rim protection. We've said all these things at some point about this Kansas defense. And here we are with two games to go and we're still saying the same things. You keep waiting on this defense to get better. And I wonder at what point we just accept that it's not going to happen. But we're all hesitant to do that. And I believe we're doing that because we're afraid of what other realities about this team that we would then have to accept as well. Luke Fedlam is an NIL expert. He is a non-agent sports attorney. He is the president of Anomaly Sports Group. Luke, you have a very lengthy and interesting and impressive bio, but for the sake of this conversation, since we're going to be talking a lot of NIL, I figured I would just let you sort of explain it instead of try to explain it myself. What's sort of the elevator pitch on what you do? So I really wear two hats. You know, first and foremost, Nick, thank you so much for having me on. Um, One of those hats is as a non-agent sports attorney. So I work with uh, individual professional and now some college uh, and even a couple high school um, athletes and work to protect them as a lawyer, really serving as their general counsel and making sure that they understand anything that they're asked to sign and that they're protected. But the other hat that I wear is uh, in this 
space of education and athlete education. I have the opportunity to be in front of athletes uh, at all levels for just a number of years. And you start to see trends. You see way, ways in which athletes are taken advantage of. And so for me, I started a company called Anomaly Sports Group about five years ago, really to focus on how do we how do we take the lessons learned with individual clients and then really turn those into workshops, conversations to have with groups of athletes? So we work with uh, multiple NFL teams, with various college athletic departments across the country, their student athletes, their coaches, athletic administrators, really to try to help them uh, with various life skills, professional development skills. But as you can imagine, this last year has really been focused on name, image, and likeness. You mentioned uh, seeing athletes getting taken advantage of. Was there, was there, was there a trend that you saw, or that you're still seeing areas in which kids are being taken advantage of in ways that they may not realize? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a that's a cornerstone of of my day to day work, actually, and that is where um, athletes are asked to sign agreements where there's term or language in there that is not beneficial to the athlete where things like we're seeing even in the in the student athlete level at the college in the college space with name image and likeness there have been deals going around where athletes are giving up their rights in perpetuity which means forever Uh, but if you don't know what in perpetuity means you don't really know what it is that you're giving up so helping helping athletes at all levels to understand what it is that they're being asked to sign before they actually sign is important and the other piece where we're seeing athletes being put in unique situations where they may not understand things is they are starting to become more and more um, kind of uh, technical or unique current uh, ways in which athletes can get involved in like sports memorabilia or NFTs in particular. And with NFTs, if you know, without going too deep into it, you know, this idea of digital memorabilia or digital trading cards, if you will, it's complex when it comes to how compensation should actually work because it's really more of a long-term royalty that you get. But we've seen agreements where athletes have been taken advantage of or tried to be taken advantage of because someone wants to pay them up front all at once, as opposed to um, allowing that athlete to be able to participate in ongoing royalties. So whatever the the various method or deal, there are still people out there who want to, you know, benefit through all this, maybe to the detriment of the athlete themselves. NIL is a relatively new idea for a lot of sports fans. I think it had been, you know, it was tossed around as, as the, the conversation about athlete compensation got louder and louder over the past decade or so. But NIL really entered, I think, a lot of people's world about a year ago. When did... When did that concept, or, or whether it's actually NIL or just the concept of athlete compensation, like when did that enter your ethos? So it's interesting because I've worked with professional athletes for, at this point, 16, 17 years. And so athletes being compensated was a, 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 obviously a normal thing and, and not ever being an agent, but being someone who worked on the financial side with athletes earlier in my career. And then, you know, on the legal side of, of, of working with athletes for the past number of years, I'm used to athletes getting compensated at the college level. It really kind of entered my world, I would say 2019. And that's when California first proposed their, uh, at the time, I believe it was Senate bill 206, which ultimately uh, was passed into law for student athletes in the state of California to be able to earn compensation. So 
2019, so about two, two and a half years ago, was really when when this said when I said this is going to be something big because once one state allows for student athletes to earn compensation, you know other states are other states are going to follow and not not let that one state be the one you know state where student athletes can can earn money in college. So when when this all went into effect, I don't remember the exact date. You you might remember. Do you know the the date it went into effect? Uh, July July first, twenty twenty one. Absolutely. I figure you might. I figure you might have a, a, a that day one. that will live in my memory, burned etched into my memory for sure. Well, I remember at the time when when we were kind of coming up on that date, and we all sort of wondered like, what's day one going to look like? And there was there were there were some deals that were being signed, and I think. From a localized standpoint, like when you think about your favorite team, you think, okay, maybe the star quarterback's doing a commercial for, you know, the local restaurant or things like that. And obviously, it's manifested into something much, much bigger than that. When you're when you're seeing this play out over the first year and knowing that it's going to evolve and change a lot over the next five years, over the next ten years, what are you seeing now? that may be different than, than what you expected this to look like either positively or negatively. And, and how far away is it from what you expected it to look like? Wow. So it, it's interesting because I think when, when name image and likeness first started in July of 2021, there was really a lot of focus on social media, social media deals, social media influencing and earning compensation that way. And I think that over the last eight months, and, and it is kind of wild to think this has only really been around for eight months. I mean, there are terms and phrases that are being used now that didn't really exist, you know, a year ago, right? Things like NIL collectives and, and, and yeah. the like. But, but when you think about kind of where we were at then, it was very much this social media, who has a social media following, they're going to get deals, they're going to get opportunities. But I think the everyone's collective thinking has really expanded to realize this is more so about student athletes just being able to earn compensation in ways that they haven't been able to before. So whether that comes through a student athlete who wants to set up their own business to sell a product or provide a service, or if this comes to student athletes in Olympic sports who want to do camps and clinics in their hometown and, and train up, you know, other athletes to try to be D one athletes or, or be, you know, college student athletes. There are a lot of ways that we are seeing kind of the expansion of name, image, and likeness occur. One of the things that really has been interesting to me that I just, you know, read about a, a couple of different athletes who have signed NIL deals, and that's where they start to receive equity in the company as opposed to just receiving payment for showing up or making an appearance or doing autographs. That's a big deal. That's something that we've seen even rarely somewhat at the, at the professional level where pro athletes might decide to take on some equity or a, a minority equity stake in a company as they, you know, before they go out and start promoting that company. So to see that now starting, ha starting to happen in some respects at the college level is really kind of a fascinating thing. But I think, I think we haven't even really scratched the surface yet. I think there's more to come in this, in this notion of expanding what name, image, and likeness looks like and really thinking about how student athletes are regularly and consistently engaging in opportunities that can earn them compensation. So if I am a 16-year-old kid, if I'm a, a quarterback prospect, if I'm a point guard and I'm going to go to college, I'm going to spend at least a year there. Maybe if I'm in football, I'm going to spend three or four years there. And I know that I'm going to be marketable because I'm a five-star kid. And I come to you for advice. I say, what? I don't know anything about NIL. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. 
What's your advice to a kid like that? Uh, well, um, Hey kid, first of all, you're doing the right thing by having this conversation, right? <laughs> like, like th that's one of the things I think is so important, which is get educated, right? Get understanding, get independent and objective education on this business side of sports. What we're talking about here, a lot of times I'll ask student athletes when I do workshops with, with student athletes across the country, we'll start off with what's the first word or the first couple words that come to mind when you think of NIL and it's always money. I mean, let's, it's always about earning money and the ability to earn money. But with those business opportunities to earn money also come business responsibilities. And it's important to understand the business side before you get into it. You know, here's a, a very easy example of that. When you look at LeBron James and, you know, the, the, the group of, of professionals that he now has around them, people that he grew up with. But at the same time, they didn't start working with him on day one as these experts in this space. He made sure that they all got the education that they needed from different professionals. And in doing that, allowed them to later come back to say, yes, now you can, you know, you are the experts to help manage me. Um, it's the same thing, right? If you're that 16 year old, you know, college prospect, hot prospect out there, understand the business, understand what, what deals are out there. Understand before you sign with a marketing agent, uh, understand what it means to sign a contract with a marketing agent. What protections should you have? How should you hold them accountable? If you're 16, your parents are going to have to also sign on these deals with you because you're a minor. So thinking about and understanding what that looks like, just getting the education is the best advice I could give anyone. And truly, before you sign anything, you've got to make sure that you understand it. Based off how you've seen schools, specifically schools, we can get into the companies and the players, but specifically schools, based off how you've seen them react, and I know it's not the same across the board, but generally speaking, how educated do you think they were? How prepared do you think they were for this moment? Schools were not prepared for this moment. Like, let's just, let's be clear. Schools were not prepared and it's not their fault. I mean, honestly, it's not their fault. So, you know, it, it's interesting because the NCAA, and I, I'm not going to be here to, you know, casting dispersions on the NCAA, but the NCAA really was fighting this notion of name, image, and likeness for a long time. When California passed their legislation, the NCAA put together a working group and the working group, you know, started to come up with what proposed regulations could potentially be. But at the same time, there was a Supreme Court case that was already in the works that the NCAA had fought at the lower levels uh, and then now was at the Supreme Court. And ultimately, it was the NCAA versus Alston case that didn't focus on name, image and likeness, but focused on education related benefits for student athletes and whether the NCAA could restrict those benefits or not. The court unanimously said that the NCAA could not restrict those benefits and the actual decision of the court didn't come out until mid-June. So I think kind of up until that point, people didn't really think that we were going to see this monumental shift just happen. But when the NCAA lost at the Supreme Court, they, you know, uh, one or two days later, the Board of Governors came out and said, hey, schools, you're going to need to come up with this policy uh, on name, image, and likeness. And that was June 20-something, less than 10 days away from NIL actually going into effect in the states that had passed the NIL legislation. So uh, schools weren't prepared because they had to come up with an entire policy for allowing student athletes to do something that they had not been able to do for like 70 years or ever in the NCAA. So that is, that is not to their, that's not their fault. But at the same time, now we're eight, nine months into it. 
we schools should be in that position of educating, preparing, bringing in outside professionals who have expertise in this space, bringing in their own law school professors who ha- who might have experience, business school professors who might have experience to help provide real world practical education for student athletes so that they can be successful while they're in college and when they leave as well. When you project into the future, once once that happens, right, once schools start investing more into NIL and educating themselves and preparing themselves five years down the line, 10 years down the line, what do you think that's going to look like? What are the schools who are going to succeed with NIL and help attracting young kids to their school specifically because of NIL? What do you think they're going to be excelling at? Yeah, they're going to be excelling at embracing name, image, and likeness and embracing the innovation and the change that's happening. So when we think about, if, if you look back nine, 10 months ago, no schools were contemplating allowing student athletes to use the school's protected logos and marks. Once one school said, you know what? It's okay if student athletes use our marks, it's going to differentiate us. Well, then other schools start following suit. And I was talking to a uh, compliance uh, head of compliance for a power five school um, a few weeks ago, and she was saying they have updated their policy seven times since it was first launched back in July. Schools that recognize that they need to evolve with time, with innovation and with growth, they're going to be the ones that will succeed in this NIL space. And, and the other piece I think as well, schools who recognize that name, image and likeness, education, programming, preparation is an asset to the school for recruiting purposes, just like it's an asset for Uh, for them to use their facilities, right? Hey, we just invested this much money in our facilities. Hey, we invested this much money in our coaching staff. Our our academics are what they are, right? These are all assets to help a school both recruit and retain their talent of student athletes. So I think when when schools use name, image, and likeness to say, we've put together this world-class educational program so that even if you're a student athlete that doesn't make it to the pros and you enter the working world after you're done at at school, then you're going to be prepared because this education is going to be helpful for you beyond just name, image, and likeness, learning about money and contracts and understanding decision-making and due diligence and all of those various uh, life skills will be helpful regardless. So a school that can kind of embrace all of that, I think they'll be very successful. I've been looking back at old quotes from uh, last summer or even before that, years leading up to it, kind of knowing eventually this was going to become imminent from coaches. And they're pretty cringeworthy now, especially coaches at major (laughs) programs at big time universities talking about, uh, you know, all of the downsides and how this was going to affect it in such a negative way. And now I'm, you know, I'm seeing, and I'm not, I'm not saying this was specifically, but I see a kid, I, a story last week uh, from the athletic talking about Oscar Shibway, one of the, the best players in the country. And his agent was speaking with the author saying that he was looking down at the table at a, at a multi-million dollar deal, NIL deal. If he comes back next year and, I'm thinking to myself, I go, did these coaches, and, and maybe they didn't, like maybe that's part of the education uh, process that you were talking about. Like they, they didn't know either how much of a tool and how much of an asset this was going to be. I think a lot of them saw it as a negative, mostly because they, they had no idea how this was going to work, but we're seeing in real time. Now they're seeing, oh my goodness, this is an incredible asset for our program an incentive to keep kids longer than they normally would. Nick, you're absolutely right. I mean, when we look at this, 
coaches. And again, you can go back to some quotes the coaches made, which I I know they don't want to go back and revisit. (laughs) But but when we think about this, you know, this is any change in college sports. You it's it's like it's such a significant hurdle, it seems like at the time. But then once you're past it, it's like, oh, okay, that that wasn't so bad. I mean, when we when we were talking about um, cost of attendance allowance and and student athletes getting a stipend and we were talking at the time, you know, depending on the school, it could be 500 bucks a month or 700 bucks a month. Um, it was like, oh my gosh, that, 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 that could be crazy. That that's so such a big change. But I mean, weeks after it happened, nobody talked about it anymore. I mean, people don't even talk about it now. Um, and that was only what less than seven or eight years ago. So you know, these changes happen. Look, name, image, and likeness, you know, came about people were talking about how it was going to just upend college sports. And look at this, you know, the world is still revolving on its axis. We're still, we're still here. College sports still exists and everything is, is, is fine. But I think some of the fear to your point about, you know, either lack of education or understanding is the fact that when, when, when college coaches think about this, there's a power dynamic, right? I think if, if we're being honest, if we're really pulling the kind of pulling the veil back, I think there's a, there's a power dynamic where the coach is very much the authority in the locker room, right? And with the team. And if now all of a sudden an athlete who is 18 years old, 19 years old, 20 years old is, is making a million dollars, I think that changes some of the dynamic a little bit in some respects. And, and, and I don't mean it changes it in terms of all of a sudden it makes the, the athlete, the authority, but I think what it does is it causes some coaches to want to potentially try to prove that they're still the boss or show that they're still, that they're still in command. And, and if you think about it, an athlete making six, seven figures could very much rival some of the assistant coaches or other, uh, maybe not the head coach, but other, you know, members of the coaching staff, uh, in terms of potentially making more money than they are. And that's very different in college sports than what we've seen, you know, for, for the history of college sports. It's much more along the lines of what we see at the pro level. And I think that's what makes and has made historically some coaches pretty nervous. Yeah, and it's, I think everybody's kind of wondering how that's going to play out because that's, imp- I mean, that's just like human nature, human interaction. Good luck trying to figure out, <laughs> you know, how that's going to affect locker rooms and coaches and, and confidence, but... You know, the, the other argument that we often heard against NIL and, and compensation is, well, if, if you get to the point where players can be compensated, then the programs and the schools with all the monies and the richest donors, they're going to get all the best players, which I always thought was funny, as in, have you not been watching college athletics <laughs> for the past That's 70 years? That's yes. the way it's always been. Yes. But what was always interesting to me about that was I think about, like, I, that we're, this is, we're here in Kansas City in I thought I thought think about Wichita State. That program owns that town, and if you're a star player in that town, like there are opportunities for you. Yeah, you may not be at yes. Kentucky or Ohio State, but like there are opportunities there. When you look at the the smaller schools, what 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 sorts of opportunities exist for them that may be unique to the the power players, so to speak? Well, it's it's really honestly exactly what you said. It is this idea of student athletes being able to potentially earn compensation in that town, right? Wherever their school is located in a, a, you know, in a smaller school, um, but also in their hometown as well, where they're from. I mean, if you go on to be a division one, anything, 
um, you know, from your hometown, that could be a big deal. And so being able to engage with local businesses, uh, it, you know, that's, that's something that I think is, is pretty special. And, and you talk about small schools. And I would also even say too, you know, when we think about historically black colleges, universities, HBCUs, when we think about um, even D2, D3, there's opportunities for student athletes to earn compensation. It doesn't mean that every student athlete is going to be a millionaire or that every student athlete's even, you know, going to earn six figures, right? For some student athletes, it's the opportunity to say, maybe I have a deal with this particular restaurant that happens to be my favorite restaurant that after games, I can go there and eat for free as long as I tweet about it or put out, post on social media about that particular restaurant. And that helps the restaurant out, helps me out, eat for free at a place that I already like. So whether you're at a large, small, you know, medium-sized school, a well-known school, a not so well-known school, there will be the opportunity uh, for you to be able to potentially earn compensation. Do you have any concerns with what you're seeing play out right now? I mean, I know it's a, it's a landmark moment and for this to finally be around and, and existent in college athletics, but is there anything that, that you're watching play out that concerns you at all? A, a couple of things that concern me. Number one, as it relates specifically to name, image, and likeness, it's taxes. Uh, we're, you know, we're sitting here on February 25th. So if there are student athletes that earn compensation in, uh, in 2021, they're going to have to pay their taxes, you know, depending on what they made and kind of their own you know, personal situation, but taxes are going to be due April 15th. And if you're a college basketball player that earned that compensation, you know, in 2021, think about where you're at now. You're at a place now where you're, you know, finishing up the regular season, you're getting ready to move into conference tournament, then from there into March Madness. And depending on how far you go into March Madness, you could be playing into April. And now all of a sudden it's like, okay, you know what? I, I forget the final four is what April 1st and 3rd or 2nd and 4th, something along those lines. Well, then you get done. If you're one of those players that made it to the final four and you need to pay your taxes, you might have just a few days to get that together. So there's taxes will always concern me because I think student athletes sometimes just think about the gross number, that main number that they're making uh, and not thinking about how uncle Sam always wants to get his cut. So, so that's one concern. The other thing that I think is of interest. I won't say that it's a concern, but it's of interest is this notion of student athletes being categorized or classified as employees. And there are a couple different lawsuits that are ongoing currently uh, about that categorization. There was a complaint just filed uh, here a couple of weeks ago with the National Labor Relations Board um, on behalf of football and then men's and women's basketball players against the Pac-12, the NCAA, UCLA, and USC um, that could have far-reaching implications. And when we, we look at this, there are, there are a couple of states that have legislation, proposed legislation working through their state houses on categorizing student-athletes as, or at least certain student-athletes as employees. That to me is something that is very much of interest because that will have a, that will have a much bigger effect and impact on the state of college athletics than name, image, and likeness. Name, image, and likeness, while it is probably the most significant change to college sports in the last 70 years, I would very easily say that if student athletes start to be categorized as employees of their institution, um, that will be something that will be monumental um, with many secondary and tertiary effects that we're going to you know, have to deal with and talk about. How do you think this affects the non-rev sports? How does this affect the sports outside of football and basketball, which a lot of times when we say college athletics, that's what we're talking about, but there's obviously a lot more going on at all these universities. 
Yeah. So there were, there were um, a lot of different studies done and we can even look at some of the, uh, on the basketball side, ESPN does a, a consistent um, discussion of like, who are our, uh, you know, who, who do we rank as like the most valuable from an NIL perspective, but you could do the same in other sports and you could do the same in other sports because there are athletes making significant dollars in other non-revenue producing sports. Um, we've seen lacrosse players who have done sig- some significant deals, women's gymnastics, uh, that have some, some different gymnasts that have done some significant deals, uh, women's volleyball. So there are opportunities across again, NIL is about an equal opportunity to earn compensation. And, and to that end, there are some athletes that have, that may be a bench warmer that may not be the star athlete, but they just happen to have a great following on social media, either because they're witty, funny, engaged, or whatever it is that they do on social media. And now they have that following. And because of that following, they're able to start to do some name, image, and likeness deals. So I think when it comes to, to, you know, the non-revenue producing sports, there, there are opportunities out there. We've had conversations with walk-on athletes and others who, again, back in their hometown, they are a star from where they're from. And so if there's an opportunity for them to go back and, and tutor kids or train kids, you know, do camps and clinics uh, to, to be able to partner with, you know, local companies, maybe that they grew up working at or, or supporting uh, there are opportunities and we may not see as many of the big number deals. Um, but, but we'll see, we'll continue to see a lot of those deals. And I know we'll say this real quick, because I think it's important to remember that some of the biggest deals that we see in football and basketball are for athletes who are going to play professional anyway. So it really is just a moving up of the deals instead of them getting those deals as a rookie professional athlete, they're getting them at the college you know, level. So on the revenue, non-revenue producing side, we're going to continue to see deals uh, exist for those players too. I'm going to ask you uh, what I would probably consider to be an impossible question to answer before I let you go. So 10 years from okay. now, uh, what does college athletics look like? Whew, Nick. Wow, man. Uh, you, you're putting me on the spot here. I think college athletics looks like the product looks like what we see today. Behind the scenes, the business looks much more equitable between athlete, school, conference, and NCAA than we've ever seen it before. The product is going to be the same. The fans, you know, of KU are going to be the fans of KU till the day they die. The fans of, you know, Alabama, Michigan, Ohio State, Texas, et cetera. They're going to be the fans, right? I mean, think about this. Players come and go all the time, right? But at the college level, we stick with our college team. At the pro level, we might say, oh, you know, well, I'm a whatever. I'm a LeBron fan. So whether he plays for the Cavs or for the Lakers or for Miami, I'm rocking with him. That's different at the pro level because we're used to players moving around. We either we went to that school or we grew up near that school or just for whatever reason, we were enamored by them when we were a kid and we've stuck with that school forever. March Madness is going to still look the same. Now, I will say this college football may end up having an expanded playoff. I think the money is too rich for them not to expand to 12 teams. So I think it'll take a little bit of time, but they'll get there. But the product on the field, the product on the court, the product that we see uh, for our student athletes is going to be the same. But behind the scenes, whether they start being categorized as employees, whether they start having revenue share opportunities and media rights and others, I think that we're going to see more equity in terms of equitable distribution of compensation um, where athletes are now a part of that equation that we've never seen before. 
Luke, uh, this is a really interesting topic, especially for people around here who are fans of KU, because it's uh, it's it's definitely one that we're seeing play out in real time. And I know for a lot of people, you, you have a, a very general, loose idea of what NIL is and how it's working. Um, uh, hopefully, after listening to this, people have a, a more robust knowledge of it, because this was awesome. Thank you so much for uh, for being so generous with your time and coming on with me today. Hey, Nick, thank you so much for having me. Let's do it again, man. All right, let's get to the mailbag. I've got a lot of them today. I may, I don't like reading the, I want to do like, maybe I want to do like voicemails or something where you guys can actually read the questions to me because I can't always tell the tone in which you're asking. Sometimes you're being sarcastic and I can't pick up on it. Or sometimes I think you're being sarcastic and you're being dead serious. So I don't know. We may have to workshop this, but I've got a lot to get to today. And if you're not familiar with this, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, if at any point you want to be a part of the mailbag, after a KU game, I always send out a prompt. You can just hit me up on Twitter, at Nick underscore Schwert, and send me your questions that you have. It doesn't have to be game-specific, but oftentimes they are. Let's get to the first one here. Why is Bill forcing man-to-man? Has been exposed all year. Do we need to run a zone to win games down the stretch, even in small doses? Um, This has been a topic of conversation about Bill Self uh, for as long as Bill Self's been at Kansas. He is one of the uh, staunchest of a, I don't know, is staunchest a a word? He is a staunch proponent of playing man-to-man defense. I know that's a word. And he is an opponent of playing zone defense. I don't know if he's actually said this on the record. Maybe he has, or it's been a long time, but... Bill Self's general idea about zone defense is that it's for cowards, that it doesn't teach you how to play defense. It's the easy way out. He wants his guys to be strong and tough and to have learned how to be strong and tough defenders. And the only way to do that is to play man-to-man. And this team has gotten exposed in man-to-man. But it's like going to a zone is always going to be the last resort. It's always going to be when you're backed into a corner, when you have no other way out, and you start punching, right? That is when Bill Self goes to the zone. I mean, this has been asked year after year after year after year. Will this team go to a zone? Will they junk it up? Will they do a 2-1-2? Will they do a triangle 2? The answer always lies in desperation. That is when they'll go to a zone, when they're desperate. Now, big picture, you could argue that defensively, they've been so bad that they are desperate for improvement. But um, I've seen the, I've seen this story too many times to know how it ends, which is that they'll only do it in small defenses. They may, I mean, that was in the question. Even in small doses, yes, maybe in small doses, but it's never going to be something that they'll go to more than here and there, junking it up for a few possessions. All right, next question. Self said a nine-man rotation was ideal after playing 11 in the loss to Baylor, then turned around and threw 12 unsuccessfully at TCU. Does making it through the four games and eight-day grind get him back to nine? Um, Yeah, so Bill said on Monday that uh, nine-man rotation was ideal, but even going back through the history of Bill Self, like, "Mm, really? How often are you really playing nine? How many minutes is that ninth guy playing? Like five? Because I don't think the guy who comes in and plays two minutes each half or plays four minutes in a stretch because somebody gets in foul trouble really counts as a part of the rotation. He can say nine is is ideal, but I don't believe him. I believe eight is ideal in his, you know, utopian world. But this is not a utopian Kansas team because you've got two positions 
point guard and the five spot. Well, let's just call them the one and the five where you don't have any good answers. There's a reason why we're seeing Dewan and Remy and Joe at the one. There's a reason we're seeing Dave and Mitch and KJ and Zach at the five. If you had a good answer there, you would play those one or two guys all game, but you don't have the answers you want. Therefore, you're still searching. Hey, that's not a good sign with two games to go. Again, we can talk about this big picture stuff, but the idea that the two most important positions in college basketball, and I don't think this can be argued. You want to talk NBA, wings are great. And KU's got great wings. They've got it figured out. CB, Ochai, Jalen, Lion share the minutes. Nobody has issues with any of that. But in college, the two most important positions are the guy bringing the ball up the court and the guy down low. And those are the two positions where KU is weakest at. Not just that they're weak, but that they are in the the late stages of the year and they're still trying to figure out that rotation. The reason why you're figuring it, it's like like with KU, I said this last night, it's like with KU KU football over the years where they're playing three or four quarterbacks each season. We always criticize the coaches to say, why don't you just stick with the guy? Well, if you have a bunch of shitty quarterbacks, there's no right way to handle that situation because in the end, you're always going to lose and you're always going to look bad. It doesn't matter if you play the, the, the least shittiest guy f- for four straight weeks and you lose every game, then you try the next one. You keep going up and down that line like you're never going to find the answer. I'm not saying that's exactly apples to apples here with KU football to the guards and the bigs for KU basketball, but I mean, that's... The gist of it is that you wanted to get certain things out of the point guard spot, and here we are at the end of the season, and you're sort of in a not-so-dissimilar situation than what you were in at the end of next year. I'm going to write that down because uh, maybe that'll be the open for the Monday podcast. All right, next question. Can I bump the below? So this is a question from a couple of weeks ago. This is actually relevant. Uh, from two weeks ago, this guy asked a question. Dewan had as many dunks in the first half against Oklahoma State as Jalen has all year. Thoughts? And the uh, the addition for this week is, a lot of worry about athleticism from certain areas. I think most notable might be at the four. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird because we're in a new age of college basketball where a four doesn't really exist. I mean, yeah, Jalen is a four, but he could just as easily be a three five years ago. He's a four just because he's, what, six, seven? Right, that that's not a power forward. He is. He's. I don't even think of him as a four. I just think of him as a wing. I think KU has three wings. And in terms of athleticism, no, he's not the most athletic, but he's super active. And for much of the season, he's been a really impressive rebounder. Like, if you want to point to one guy to say like this is the indication that KU is not fresh right now, it would be Jalen. Jalen is the guy who's been the junkyard dog, do-it-all, scrappy, nose for the ball, defensively, offensively, always finding a way to get in or around the play. And he's been pretty quiet these last two games, both of which KU's lost. So um, maybe there's something to that. And in terms of athleticism, yeah, I mean, this isn't, this isn't KU's most athletic team. And that was never more evident than on Tuesday against TCU. I mean, Bill said it after the game that TCU was playing above the rim. We were playing below the rim. That was a, a very, very astute observation by Bill. So, you know what? He's got a good basketball mind. I don't think people give him enough credit for that. Next question. Why does Paul Pierce not care about Kansas? So, this is in reference to my interview with Scott Pollard on Monday's podcast. If you haven't checked it out, what are you doing? Great podcast with Rex Walters and Scott Pollard on Monday. And Scott was talking about um, in, 2000, in 2011, 
when KU did the um, the one hundred year thing. I don't I don't remember what the hell it was. Uh, they did the the thing. You guys know what I'm talking about. Where they brought all the players back and they had the scrimmage with them with you know Mario and Keith Langford and Nick Collison and the Morris twins. Uh, who the hell else? Paul, Paul Pierce, right? They, all these dudes. They all came back and they played a scrimmage and Paul Pierce hit a three and, and Mario hit a three and they ended the game with a tie and it was really cool. But in trying to convince Paul Pierce to come back, like the story has it that that whole event was not going to happen unless Paul Pierce showed up. This is, this is this, Scott Pollard did not tell me this, but this is a story I've heard uh, before is that Everybody was waiting on Paul Pierce to say yes because all these it's it's tough to coordinate shit like this. It's tough to get all these different guys who are playing professionally and when they are playing like they want to just go and relax and not do anything. It's tough to get them to sign up to come to Lawrence, Kansas for a weekend. And none of those guys were going to sign up until they heard that Paul Pierce was coming. And this is when Paul was still in the NBA, so of course once he signed up everybody else came and when when uh, when Scott was talking to me last week or, or earlier this week, he brought up that he had to call Paul to to convince him to come back, and he said, "I don't care about Kansas," which you know, as a Kansas fan, you know you do care about Kansas. So you hear that, and you hear about Paul Pierce, who's one of the greatest players to ever play at Kansas, and you say, "What the hell, man? Well, what do you have against Kansas?" It's not that these guys don't have anything against Kansas. It's that Paul Pierce spent three years in Lawrence, Kansas. And then he has since spent the next 15 years not being in Lawrence, Kansas. Not even 15 years, 25 years. A decade off. Second straight episode with a major math fumble. This is becoming a trend. This is the episode of trends. Like these guys, we, we always think about it because we're watching Kansas year after year when the, when the roster turns over and new guys come in and fresh faces and you fall in love with a new player and you fall in love with a new team. We don't view the program the same way as these players do. Now, some of them do, right? The guys who took around for four years, maybe they win a national championship. Some guys are just built different than others. Some guys have that, that connection with the city and the community and the university more than others do. But for Paul Pierce, like, the guy went on to go to all-star games and, and win NBA championships and work for ESPN. And I'm not saying that he doesn't give a shit about Kansas. It's that it's a small, small fraction of his life in a small fraction of his basketball career. And that's the reality for most of these guys, especially the ones who go and play in the NBA. All right, next question. Why has Kansas struggled since the return of Remy Martin? Here we go. One could say that Kansas is better without Remy. One could say that. This is what I'm talking about. Enough with the reasonable takes. KU's lost two games in a row. I don't want your reasonable takes. I want fire like this, that Remy Martin is the reason that Kansas has struggled. This is why I wanted to do the voicemail stuff. I can't tell if you're being sarcastic or not. I think you are because there's a little laughing emoji in there. Uh, yeah, Remy Martin has played for two straight games and KU has lost two straight games. Is there a correlation? Uh, probably not. I do think the rotation's been sort of switched up a little bit. I mean, that much is, it's not an opinion as much as it is a fact. I mean, Remy played 11 minutes versus Baylor, 12 minutes versus TCU. But he's not the reason that they lost either one of those games. The reason why KU has lost those games is because Ochai, who has been a National Player of the Year candidate, has been pretty inefficient. Dave has been fine. Jalen's been quiet. That, that's why the, the players that you've counted on game in, game out, have been a little bit worse. And if it's just one of those guys that's a little bit worse on any given night, 
then you can probably overcome it because you're still Kansas and you still have as much talent as just about anybody in the country. But when all three of them are playing poorly at the same time, well, that's a team issue. Now you're not just having a bad game for one guy. Now you're having a bad game as a team. Now you've had two bad games as a team. Yeah, that's why you're losing games. You played soft against TCU and against Baylor. Like, that was just a team that wanted it more. That was a team that threw a a counterpunch that you weren't ready for. Like, this is is where KU's at. It's not a Remy Martin issue. Uh, I, I still don't think Remy is the answer to Kansas's problems. I think Sam Vecini put it best when he joined me a few weeks ago. He never thought that Remy was a good fit for Kansas, but that he is a talented shot maker and can probably win you a game in March. And that should still be the hope. But the idea that he's coming back and is causing Kansas to lose games, yeah, probably not on that train. What are the odds that CB comes back next year? Every game I feel more confident he'll be in Lawrence for 2023. This has a very similar vibe to how I felt about Ochai last year, that by the time the season ends, he's going to test the waters. And he'll go to the NBA Combine, he'll get feedback from teams, and he'll end up coming back. I actually think that Ochai was in a slightly better position than Christian is this year because Ochai is a stronger shooter. We've now got two straight seasons of Christian proving to be an average shooter. He's shooting 36% from three this year, 38% conference play. That's still above average, but... The free throw percentages are down, and there's a lot of studies that would indicate that actually college free throw percentage is a better future indicator of how good of a three-point shooter you're going to be in the pros. But I mean, I don't know how many times, and everybody said this to me, and I, and I agree, that Christian's never ready to shoot. There just seems to be a hitch in his shot. And maybe, like Ochai, he dedicates himself to reworking or just tinkering with that form over the summer and becomes uh, an improved shooter. Because if he goes from being a 38% shooter or a 36% shooter to a 42-43 like Ochai did and a high-volume guy and a guy who's got a quick release and is ready to shoot every time he touches the ball, that's the difference between Christian being the guy he is this year and being a dude who averages 18, 19 points a game. That's why I have Ochai Abaji vibes. Because he's got the game. He really does. But he's missing a few things. He could probably go pro and get drafted this year. For him, it's just all going to be about what he wants. Like, do you want to be a top 15 pick? Do you want to be a top 20 pick? Does that matter to you to be in a first round guaranteed money? Or do you just want your first crack at it? But I don't know. Christian's a guy who strikes me as somebody who likes college basketball. I don't know him. I don't I don't know what his intentions are. But uh, yeah, I'm kind of with you. I think Christian's probably back in 2023. But you got to remember, too, uh, Grady Dick is coming in. That's another wing. I would imagine Jalen's going to be back as well. So... Uh, the rotation wouldn't be difficult. I don't think KU's going to be pushing him out by any means. But the the way the team's going to work next year, the, the, the roster construction is going to be significantly different. All right, we'll get to a couple more here. Is it too early to dismiss Norm and bring back Danny? I'm not sure anyone in their right mind can deny the lack of big man development. Well, Danny Manning is currently the interim head coach at Maryland after Mark Turgeon stepped down. I mean, yeah, Danny had an incredible run at developing big guys. He also had an incredible run of getting big guys. Like, look at the guys. I don't think it's Norm Roberts' fault that David McCormick hasn't turned into a star. And aside from him, you've got two freshmen in K.J. Adams and Zach Clements and Mitch Lightfoot, which, again, you're not putting on Norm. It's much less about Norm and much more about the personnel. All right, last question for the mailbag, and we will wrap this thing up. Better player, Josh Jackson or Ochai Abaji? 
Well, uh, Josh Jackson was drafted fourth overall. I think I'm going to take the over on that for Ochai this year. Now, Ochai might be a top 10 pick, but he's not going to be drafted that high. Josh Jackson was also a freshman. Ochai is a senior. Age matters a lot in the NBA draft, it turns out. In terms of better college player, though, there's no question it's Ochai. Ochai's having one of the best seasons uh, of the Bill Fair at Kansas. I've probably said that four or five times on this podcast, but it's always worth mentioning because I don't ever want to get to the point where we're normalizing how great of a season he's had. Now, he's been a a rough two-game stretch. He hasn't been quite as efficient as he was before, but I think that's uh, to be expected. He still had, what, 27, whatever it was, against Baylor, albeit he had to take a hell of a lot of shots because nobody else was doing anything. Josh Jackson had the luxury of playing next to a National Player of the Year candidate or National Player of the Year in Frank Mason. He also got to play with Devontae Graham and Svee Mikhailuk. Like, that was a perfect, perfect roster for Josh Jackson. I don't know how good Josh Jackson is on this team. I don't think he's as good on this team as he was in 2017. Again, he was still a great pro prospect. I love, I love, don't, don't get me wrong, I love Josh Jackson as a college player, but... Man, this version of Ochai is really, really damn good. And I hope, I hope he gets a chance to do something in March. I think he's going to need some help because he's not Devontae or Malik Newman, like where you're just going to take over the game. Because as good as Ochai is, he's not a ball handler and he's not, he doesn't have that quick first step. Like he's not Yesifu or Remy where he can just get past you in the blink of an eye. Like, he needs a little bit of help. He's still one of the five best players in the country, but he needs some help, and I hope he gets it because it would be a shame if this season goes to waste with an early exit, which I know after the last couple of games feels like it's a little bit more realistic than it may have felt before that. All right, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Again, if you ever want to be a part of that mailbag, send me stuff at Nick underscore Schwartz. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, review, share, grassroots effort, do whatever you have to do. Send a carrier pigeon. Let your friends know about the Wave in the Weed podcast. Thanks to Luke Fedlam. I have a new episode out on Monday. Thank you. a time of renewal so why not refresh your home with a little help from blinds.com we make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact choose from premium blinds shades and shutters we even have options for your patio too Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. 
And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t-mobile.com. 